everything you just said should have been John Roberts' end of year report. Like if he had given, you know, <laughs> why even, doesn't John call me? Even the shoddy poor man's version of that would have been head and shoulders above the hairball that he choked out. And welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's pod is a candid conversation with Dahlia Lithwick, a regular contributor at MSNBC and senior editor at Slate, who's been writing about the Supreme Court and jurisprudence for over 20 years. Dahlia is also the host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning podcast about the law and the Supreme Court, and her work has appeared everywhere from the New York Times to the New Yorker to the New Republic. A visiting professor at the University of Georgia Law School, the University of Virginia School of Law, and the Hebrew University Law School in Jerusalem, Dahlia was one of the first online journalists invited to the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press. She testified before Congress about access to justice in the era of the Roberts Court and how Me Too impacted federal judicial law clerks. A Stanford and Yale graduate, Dahlia has won a litany of journalism awards and has been featured in many literary anthologies, as well as co-authoring two books. I'm having her on today to talk about her newest book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, a book which focuses on how the women around the country who, independent of each other, sprang into action and worked tirelessly to hold the line during the Trump years against the most chaotic and malignant presidency in living memory. We'll also talk about the Supreme Court and what those of us who believe in actual justice can be thinking and doing considering the direction the court seems to be headed. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, lawyer, author, award-winning journalist, and one of the nation's foremost legal commentators, Dahlia Lithwick. Welcome, Dahlia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, thank you for joining us today. I mean, I've wanted to talk to you for a really long time. You have this amazing ability to take complicated legal issues and break them down in this kind of clear colloquial way so you don't lose the rest of us in legalese or intellectualism. And I really want to thank you for that. It's what I try to do here on the show too. And it's just, it's so appreciated. That's very kind and um, very, uh, it's been really important to me my whole career to be kind of a translator, an ambassador, because I just don't think writing for the constitutional law professors is super helpful for the way we think about justice, the rule of law, democracy. So it means a lot that you say that. Yeah. Well, plus we're both good old Canadian girls, right? There Who have you built go. our lives around commenting on the American system. So maybe it's just the like country cousin coming down and saying like, I think it's actually like this, you know? Whenever people um, knock on me for being Canadian, I remind them that people like de Tocqueville uh, were some of the greatest commentators on the United States, and that sometimes it helps to have come from an outside and have a point of comparison, both to see the virtues, the way de Tocqueville was like blown away by it, but also the faults. So I don't think there's anything horribly wrong uh, with having the sort of split screen of being an insider-outsider. No, I don't either. This is how I roll. Exactly. Um, okay, so first off, let's talk about this book, Lady Justice, which not only is the history of women lawyers, women judges, women Supreme Court justices, but a book about how women in general have been empowered or disempowered by the decisions of the courts. Your book starts at the beginning of the Trump era with amazing people like Sally Yates standing up for the rule of law and against the religious persecution of the Muslim ban and basically getting thrown out on her ear for it. But it also includes people like Vanita Gupta, who's the head of the leadership conference, um, Roberta Kaplan, who is the lawyer who took on white supremacists in Charlottesville, Stacey Abrams, and all the work she's done to register voters and challenge voter suppression laws and bring our attention to unfair voting practices. I feel like you chose your book subjects with a real deliberation so that everyone could see themselves reflected in it in some way. You've got lawyers, you've got justices, you've got organizers, you've got all different kinds of people with different backgrounds doing different things in different ways to make a difference. And I, I think that's really powerful. I, I love that you clocked that. It was very much my wish that anyone who read this book, particularly you know, if you're a first year law student and you're trying to see yourself in these women, uh, would see themselves in someone. And so it was really, really important, uh, not just to sort of start with Sally Yates, whose you know, grandparents were lawyers, whose parents were, you know, lawyers, who was this sort of 
in some sense, the most privileged, you know, of anyone in the book, but to end with Stacey Abrams, who kind of had to claw her way into the legal profession um, and who didn't come from privilege because I wanted to tell the story of, in some ways, how accessible it is to be able to use the tools and even the weapons of law uh, in order to get huge, huge seismic changes in the system. And so I really did. Um, the other thing that was quite intentional that I think you just flicked at was that I wanted it to start with just straight up lawyers, the kind of people you see on Law and Order, you know, the kind of people who we love to watch on TV and have it end with Vanita and with Stacey Abrams because they're organizers more than just lawyers. I wanted it to land on this idea that democracy isn't just for lawyers, it's for everyone. And so it was very, very intentional to have the arc be to begin in some sense with Yates, the lawyer's lawyer, and to end with this huge kind of panoply of women organizing in groups that have nothing to do with law school or filing memos in court, but who in fact are the saviors of democracy. Yeah. And you argue that, you know, American women have a very special relationship in the law. And you say that American women are just exceptionally good at it. And by telling these stories of these women and their commitment to the principles of justice and equality under the law and a, a, a country that works for everyone, you're kind of hoping that it will inspire people, not just women, but men and women to take their example and do it in their own way. Like you're saying, you don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to be in government. You don't have to be a Sally Yates who's already connected to power to make a difference. But everyone who believes in civil rights and voting rights and women's rights can play a part in making this country better. And I think that's a good story that you're telling. I think that one of the things, and you can probably sense it in the book, is, you know, I've covered the Supreme Court for 23 years, and I worry so much about the cult of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I'm saying that you can see behind me, I've got the throw pillow, I've got the votive candle, I've got the earrings. Like, it's not as though I'm not you know, a card-carrying member of the cult of RBG. But I think that we, in some ways, particularly as women, went off the rails when we started to believe that great saviors like RBG were the only people who were doing justice work, right? And in all those years where we were listening to those notorious RBG, you know, bits of songs and, you know, her descent in Hobby Lobby set to song, it was just really easy to say, as long as she's doing it, as long as she's holding up the constitutional sky, you know, I can just buy the tote bag and feel good. And the flip of that, and this is important, is all the people who are still mad at her, right? That she didn't step down when Obama wanted her to step down and she could have been replaced and we wouldn't have Amy Coney Barrett. That's the other side of the same coin, which is putting all of the responsibility on her. And so what I want to say is that both those stories are really dangerous. You know, it was not on her alone to save democracy and it is not her fault that Hillary Clinton didn't get elected in an election, let's be really clear, when three to one people who cared about the court broke for Donald Trump in 2016. Yeah. So we didn't show up either. And so I wanted to tell the story of how for every RBG in American history, there are hundreds, if not thousands of what I think of as like Ruth Baby Ginsburg's, you know, just lawyers in the fields doing the work inventing, you know, new tests, creating new architecture. It's why the book starts with Polly Murray, who I know we're going to talk about. But I think I want to just make this argument that every time we cede all power and control and agency to some hero and this celebrity notion, and we're doing it, by the way, already, we're falling into that with Katanji Brown Jackson. You know, we want her to be the person who saves us. It gives away a little bit of the power that we have, as you said, to fight for voting rights, to fight against vote suppression, to fight against gerrymandering, to fight, you know, for, for values that you don't have to be RBG to fight for. You just have to get involved. And so I very much wanted this book to sort of upend the idea that celebrity justice is going to save us in much the same way, by the way, that we all thought Bob Mueller was going to save us. You know, we all keep waiting for Adam Schiff to save us. And that's just not how democracy works. And maybe more pointedly, it is certainly not how democracy ever worked for women. Yeah. 
So true. I mean, you're you're saying basically the same thing that quite a few smart people on this show have said, which is that no one's coming to save us. We're our own saviors. You know, don't put it on the Bob Mullers or the, you know, Jack Smiths now or Katanji Brown Jackson or whoever. You know, it's problematic probably because as Americans, we love a savior, right? We love our Superman. We love the one person that's going to come in and save us all and hold the building up and do the thing. But we're we're the saviors. It's just that we have to collectively band together to actually do the work and we don't love work and it's tough. And so we think like it would be just so much better if someone could just swoosh in and save us all. And it's just not going to happen. But you were mentioning Polly Murray. So let's talk about that because with all the names that we've heard that you're throughout your book in Lady Justice, all these names that are you know famous that have been clocking around in our brains, it also includes heroes who in some ways are almost completely unknown to us. And Polly Murray is one of those people, right? She's this human rights activist who wrote what you've called the Bible of desegregation for Thurgood Marshall. She authored what would become the foundations of his winning Brown v. Board of Education argument before he became our first Black justice. It was Polly Murray who wrote what would become the central theory of gender equality that then lawyer Ruth Bader Ginsburg credited when she argued on the basis of sex. And we should know people like Polly Murray. I mean, but we don't, right? She, was, she wasn't just a Black woman activist or a prolific writer or an influencer of these big, important people in our legal history, but she's also someone that was very clear from the beginning that she was someone who felt like a man trapped in a woman's body, well before we had any language for someone who felt like that. So this is a person that was truly ahead of their time. In fact, they just made an Amazon original movie of their life, and I... I find that amazing. And just reading about this person's life was so extraordinary to me because the story of Polly Murray really drives home this point that you were making that there are so many people who are working behind the scenes. You know, so many Ruth Baby Ginsburgs, right? So many people whose names we don't know who have and can and continue to make a difference in our country and how it functions. Yeah, it's so important to me. You know, I went to law school for three years. I never heard Polly Murray's name. I heard Polly Murray's name, believe it or not, from the same place that those documentarians who made the film, My Name is Polly Murray, which people should just watch because it is spectacular. And um, uh, uh, Julie Cohen and Betsy West got the idea to make this movie when they were making the movie about RBG that we all watched because Justice Ginsburg kept talking about Polly Murray and they were like, who is this person that Ruth Bader Ginsburg keeps citing? And it turns out that somehow while history lifted up one spectacular woman, RBG, it almost completely papered over someone who was in many ways equally spectacular in part because as you said, Polly Murray was gender nonconforming long before we understood what that could mean. Polly Murray was black uh, and so didn't have doors flung open uh, the way and not that RBG had doors flung open, but so, certainly couldn't get into a lot of the the places that RBG could get into. And as you said, Polly Murray's work was just taken uncredited to form the spine of Brown v. Board. Uh, at least RBG credited her credited Polly Murray's work uh, at the ACLU when she worked as a lawyer. But the idea that this person could have been, in some sense, the human being who clawed the idea of using the 14th Amendment for gender protection and for racial equality, and that history just doesn't remember, was something that to me was such a gut punch because it raised these questions that you're raising too of is it possible that the people who get famous and get remembered and get the throw pillows and the mugs and the earrings are not necessarily the only people doing the work? And if it's true, and I think it is true, particularly for women, that for most of history, if you think about the suffragettes or if you think about, you know, women in the civil rights era, they were just those Polly Murray people. They were working away in the vineyards, doing the job, and nobody ever made them famous. And I think that we have really fallen prey to this idea that if you aren't famous, you aren't important. And so I wanted to lift up Polly Murray, who, by the way, refused to move to the back of the bus before Rosa Parks, you know, who, by the way, was desegregating lunch counters before anyone else, who, by the way, I love this part, wrote to Richard Nixon and said, you know, who'd be a great 
state's first woman justice? Me! And of course, Richard Justice, uh, uh, Richard uh, Nixon did not, in fact, uh, do that. But here's a person who every step of the way, there was a stumbling block, picked themselves up, and nevertheless did this astonishing work. And I never read the words Polly Murray in law school. And so, yes, it was very much a way for me to anchor the book in this idea that waiting around for the next RBG means missing all the Polly Murrays. And in my view, everyone in the book, some of them are, as you said, more famous, some of them are not, but they're everywhere and they're amazing. And I want us to really fet them and celebrate them because they are the ones who are doing today what Polly Murray and RBG were doing in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. I mean, the book isn't just about these extraordinary women lawyers, and they are extraordinary, but it's for anyone who continue to kind of save and stand up for the Republic and its values, right? But what you're saying is we should have a conversation about who gets famous, who gets the credit, whose name is remembered in history, and why. Because you can make a lot of a difference and, and not have been the one with the earrings. Exactly. And and maybe, you know, the other trick that I think you already caught is that the last three chapters of the book are all about voting, right? This is not sexy. This is not, you know, dun, dun. <laughs> there's nothing. You're never going to see a Law and Order Special Victims Unit about voting rights. But I really wanted to make that same argument, you know, that you're making, which is democracy is not won and lost exclusively in courtrooms. You know, it's important. It's incredibly important to be fighting for voting rights, to be fighting. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court term. I mean, all that stuff is happening at the Supreme Court and it's important. But I wanted the book to end in a place where if you're not fighting about gerrymandering, if you're not making sure that one person, one vote is enshrined in your state, you know, state's values, if you are giving away all the ground around organizing and around doing the kinds of coalition building that Stacey Abrams is doing, then it doesn't matter what's happening in the Supreme Court. You can win all the cases in the courts and still lose democracy. And for people, and I'm sure a lot of folks who are listening, who are still just gobsmacked that Dobbs happened last year, that on a dime, we lost the right to terminate a pregnancy in half the state's that happened not just because of what happened in the courts, that happened because of what's happening to voting. And I think we have to think yeah. about that and talk about that because that stuff is, as you say, mind glazingly turgid, boring, doctrinal stuff. But that's where the book landed because I realized like those are the heroes, the ones who are making democracy safe in all these complex systemic ways that are just never going to get a Netflix special. No, it's true. There's no dun-dun for them. It's there quite no, boring no dun -dun. and so totally necessary. Yeah. But okay, so let's talk about the Supreme Court, right? As far as I'm concerned, it's in real trouble. Like this current court has a major legitimacy problem on their hands, right? Their approval rating has never been lower. The right-wing justices are now acting, as far as I'm concerned, like untouchables. And people are understandably worried that, like you said, the Dobbs decision is just the beginning, that this erosion of privacy, of civil rights, of women's rights is just starting to be snowballed in this country. And it's just going to go downhill if we aren't paying attention. I, I can say with a pretty high degree of confidence, I've been covering the Supreme Court for 23 terms, and I have never seen anything like the last term and this term. And and yeah. maybe the best sort of measures of that, you you just you just mentioned one, which is the approval ratings, which have always been, even after Bush v. Gore, uh, much higher than the other two branches, which conceitedly is low. But for, we now have approval ratings for the Supreme Court in that are the lowest ratings we've ever seen since polling began. That's one measure. So public confidence in the court is shattered. We have scandals like the leak of the Dobbs opinion, which is unlike anything we've ever seen before. We have Clarence Thomas refusing to recuse himself in January 6 cases where he kn we know it's undisputed that his wife was materially involved and that he is invested in the outcome. And then in addition to all of that sort of superstructure of what looks like corruption, people starting to say, wait, there's no ethics rules for the justices. How is that possible? Then we have, as you said, the kinds of stuff that is on the docket now, which is just shocking. Yeah. And for years and years, you'd have like two, three big ticket cases. Now you've got 10. 
And for years and years, and I think this is the thing that I say that always kind of maybe reinforces the larger point that you're making about this drift of the court to the right. In all my time covering the court, the median justice was either Sandra Day O'Connor, who was sort of moderate Republican, then Anthony Kennedy, slightly less moderate Republican, but a soft spot for LGBTQ rights, soft spot for affirmative action, soft spot for women's rights. Human rights in general. <laughs> yeah. And for dignity. Yeah. That, that was his watchword. The median justice now is Brett Kavanaugh, which means just to make it really clear, Chief Justice John Roberts is on the left. <laughs> He's on the left, right? And And by every single... Um, tests that you can do to account for, you know, conservative. John Roberts is one of the most conservative justices in the last 100 years. And he's a liberal on this court because Brett Kavanaugh is the center swing vote. That's where we are. And the other thing that I think, you know, is just useful in answering your question is, you know, my friend Leah Littman at, at Michigan started calling this the YOLO court, the hashtag YOLO court, because they there's no breaks. There's no, we'll do it small and in five years we'll do it big or we'll overturn something, but we won't say we're overturning it. We'll leave that. All of the tricks that they used to deploy over my career yeah. to make it look like we're not taking big swings. We're just going to, you know, bunt and maybe get to second next year and maybe get to third. Now it's just big swing, big swing, big swing. And I think if we talk about some of the cases last year that got sort of less attention because Dobbs got so much attention, even without Dobbs, last year would have been the most shocking year of my career. We just missed yeah. a lot of those cases because abortion was above and beyond. But this term is almost worse than last term. And I don't see any breaks on the court. I don't see any evidence that they are looking around understanding that the public has lost confidence. People are, you know, they had security fencing around the court at the end of last term. There was a, a somebody threatening Brett Kavanaugh's life. All that stuff is happening. It's terrifying for the justices. The leak was terrifying. And yet they have done nothing, nothing to suggest that they care. Today's pod is sponsored by Green Chef. Green Chef is a CCOF certified meal kit company that makes eating well easy with plans that fit into every lifestyle. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or just looking to eat more healthy, well-balanced meals, Green Chef offers a range of recipes to suit your preferences. So start this new year off with delicious, convenient recipes that support your healthy lifestyle and taste good. Green Chef believes that you can eat well without having to sacrifice taste. They recently expanded their menu, so you can now choose from 30 recipes weekly with the option of mix and match meals from different dietary preferences in the same box without changing your plan. So you can eat vegan one day and keto the next. If you want more of your favorite recipe, you can double the portion in your weekly order with just a click. There's more customization than ever, including swapping proteins for any of the meals that feature chicken, beef, or salmon. Or you can add chicken or fish to select vegan and vegetarian recipes for an additional protein boost. And this isn't any regular old protein. This is USDA certified organic ground beef, certified organic chicken, and wild-caught sockeye salmon. All recipes include organic produce, premium proteins, and sustainably sourced ingredients. So go to greenchef.com slash politicsgirl60 and use the code politicsgirl60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash politicsgirl60. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. I mean, you're talking about Chief Justice Roberts being a liberal on this court, which is hilarious if you look at his history. Um, but, you know, he's still the chief justice and he did his end of year 2022 report. And to read it, you would think he ha was asleep for half of last year because he's missed out on so many things that the court is actually dealing with. And do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because people have to remember, you're saying, you know, most of us missed a lot of it because of Dobbs. It was such a shocking moment to us. But Dobbs was only eight months ago, right? Would they, it was not that long ago that we had the Dobbs leak. We should remind people that leaks don't just happen. This is not something that happens in the Supreme Court. Very few people have access to these drafts. 
And at the time, Roberts described this leak for the Dobbs opinion as a singular and egregious breach of trust and an affront to the court. And Clarence Thomas said it was an infidelity that left him profoundly shattered. And we heard endless screeching from every right-wing blowhard in America about how people should be fired instantly and persecuted and prosecuted and serving jail time. And then eight months later, when Roberts writes his report about the past year, he fails to mention the leak in it, which is quite astounding. And then I I think very recently, we just got a, they're not looking into it anymore, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, late Thursday, <laughs> the news broke that the court just gave up. They're like, super sorry. We have questioned all the employees. We've unplugged the printers and like shook the toner cartridges and, you know, Encyclopedia Brown and Harriet the Spy are in here like doing due diligence, but we can't figure out who it is. It is like snot out your nose hilarious to read them talking about how the printers were not connected to centralized networks and like, you know, people were bringing like doing stuff at home on their printer, like the whole... My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, noted it is astonishing, not that they didn't find the leaker. It is astonishing there aren't 500 leaks a year. Like this is the most unsecured, ridiculous um, workspace. And the idea that, as you say, less than a year ago, this was the single most egregious affront. And by the way, the justices... My friend uh, Stephen Mazzi has a good piece uh, last week in The Economist about how the justices are all kind of mad at each other and they're not getting along and there's it's really ugly. And you can hear it, by the way, at oral argument. He's quite right. And all this has been attributed to the leak. And yet, as you say, we just stop looking. We're super sorry. Sorry. So weird, right? I mean, and they haven't changed any of the protocols, really. I mean, I don't see any major changes so that this wouldn't happen again. It's not even like they've attempted to learn something from this. I mean, you completely freak out about something and then you brush it under the rug. It makes very little sense. We also found out this year that there was new allegations that Alito himself had leaked the 2014 Hobby Lobby decision about contraception and religious liberty. Uh, And it's hard Um, as an outsider, as a regular person, to not look at it and think, is one of the Supreme Court justices themselves the leaker? You know what I mean? Is is it Ginny Thomas? Is it Alito himself? You know, there's a lot of people who are now questioning the court in general, their their own ethics, their own ability to to follow the law. Yeah. And that Hobby Lobby story, the story that the New York Times broke about how it's possible that Sam Alito had leaked what would be the outcome of that Hobby Lobby. That was the decision uh, that (laughs) for-profit corporations uh, could withhold contraception from their employees uh, because of their own religious views, because corporations uh, are people too and they have religion. Yeah. Um, But that uh, allegedly, uh, he, he mentioned that to someone. But the real nut of that story that I think maybe didn't even get enough attention and it was horrifying was that people were pouring tens and thousands and hundreds and thousands of dollars into the Supreme Court Historical Society, which was supposed to be this sort of anodyne little society to preserve, you know, historical artifacts. People were using donations to the Historical Society to get access to the justices and that there was this very clear program by an organization, by the way, that set up shop across the street from the Supreme Court and then just convinced donors to become friendly with the justices, to fly them out to Jackson Hole and lobby them and get them to, you know, be be tougher in terms of protecting religious liberty. And that that all happened and none of us knew anything, that there was kind of like a spigot that you could turn on to get access yeah, to the justices. Yeah, I think if people don't know what Dahlia is talking about, I mean, this is also something Roberts failed to mention in his end of year report, that this scandal came out with the Supreme Court Historical Society, which is what Dahlia is talking about, raising millions and millions of dollars from lawyers, from corporations, from special interests who wanted access to Supreme Court justices and basically paid for that privilege. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically like kind of a pay-for-play scandal for donors who have a significant stake in way the, the way the court decides their case. Like people were actually giving money the year their actual case was in 
session or there were lawyers, litigators giving money when they would just be going in front of the court. And then they're invited to a dinner and then they can chit chat up, you know, the right people. Um, like Chevron gave money right. while the court was deciding whether they would hold them accountable in their role for global warming, right? And you're like, oh, Lord, what are they doing there, right? Like, it's already an insular and clubby world, the Supreme Court, right? But this feels worse somehow, especially at a time where the court has already become increasingly politicized. This feels very gross, very backroom, and very shady. And right. Roberts failed to mention that as well. <laughs> right. No, I mean, two, two, two quick things. The only thing Roberts mentioned in his uh, year-end report was threats to judges, which is a little bit like saying, enough about you and your lack of confidence in the court. What about me and the fact that I don't feel safe, which is just so just unbearably, unbearably self-absorbed. Uh, how yeah. about the fact that the American you know, public has no confidence in the court other than the fact that Roberts thinks that makes it difficult for him to go to the supermarket? It seems that he completely abdicated responsibility for, as you said, discussing this whole host of scandals. But the other thing that I think is really, really important, and he, again, utterly failed to mention it, is the thing we've both talked about a little bit, which is there is a code of ethics. There are federal rules and federal canons that every single judge must obey. Any Article Three judge who's got a lifetime appointment, who never, never, ever, unless it rises to the level of impeachable, will never be removed. And the ethics rules say, like, if it looks like you're in the tank for your wife or your kid or something that you hold stock in or your buddy that you golf with, don't do it. I mean, essentially, the ethics rules aren't just be ethical. It's a much higher standard. It's look ethical. It's don't do anything that gives the appearance of impropriety is what the canons provide. And that's because nobody wants to go into a court where their judge is golfing with the other side, right? Nobody wants to go right. into a court where the court's son owns, the, the, the judge's son owns the business. And that's where we live now. Every yeah. other federal judge, including the judge I clerk for, my friends have clerked for, hold themselves to that, right? I, I, there are judges who will get out of the elevator rather than be in the elevator at the courthouse with somebody who's a party. And then you find out that these guys are like flying around the country. They're doing junkets. They're not reporting them on their disclosures. They're not letting us know that, as you say, there's this elaborate, <laughs> evidently pay-to-play racket, and they tell us nothing. And then the justices say, there's nothing we can do. We can't be forced. Yeah. We, we look at these, Chief Justice Roberts said, they're advisory. We consult the rules. But then at the end of the day, you know, who is going to enforce We don't follow them? them. And that's the thing. If you are the absolute pinnacle of the law, but you don't have to follow it yourself, there's only so long that people can stomach that before they question it. Like, that's why I said that they've become what you would almost say the 6-3 court has become almost untouchable, right? Like you've got Amy Coney Barrett doing speeches at Mitch McConnell's center and then blaming the press for the public's mistrust in the court, right? You've got Gorsuch doing every single Federalist Society event. You've got Brett Kavanaugh partying it up with the biggest right-wing power players over the holidays. Clarence Thomas is po you know, posing with Herschel Walker and then refusing to recuse himself from cases that directly impact his wife. Um, pretty much everything Justice Alito does seems sketchy to me. Um, it's just, it's very problematic, right? Because if we are supposed to count on these people to be the discerners of what our laws are, what the rights are, what what the basis of our entire country's rule of law is, not having them follow their own law is, you know, having no, nothing to stand up for them, nothing to stop them and no, you know, much like Congress, no HR, but definitely not even ethics that other justices or judges around the country have to follow, right? I mean, this isn't new. It's just to an extreme. I mean, it's been wildly reported that Justice Scalia traveled all over the world on the dime of his private sponsors, right? He died staying for free at a $700 a night hunting lodge owned by somebody whose company had recently been before the Supreme Court. Like, this stuff is sketchy. But it's tough because, as you point out, like, the court keeps reframing the public anger against them as a, a public problem, like it's our fault, it's our problem, and a security risk to themselves. And like, I get it. No one wants to think that there should be violent threats against judges, against their families, against anyone in public office for that matter. But the real question is, how can we have faith in a judiciary that seems to answer to no one, not even each other 
or basic ethics, right? Like, and then you look at Chief Justice Roberts and his, you know, end of year report and you think, is he incapable of being introspective about this? Like, because he's clearly someone that believes in the rule of law, but he's lost control over this court and he's decided to sort of place his concern at the suffering of the justices themselves rather than the suffering of the country. I I love that construction because I think it's absolutely true that those both those things are correct. I think Chief Justice John Roberts is an institutionalist. He really sees himself as the heir to the great Chief Justice John Marshall. You know, he learned at the feet of of, uh, uh, Justice Rehnquist, who was he he clerked for. He really and you've seen it throughout his career, puts the court first. And sometimes, you know, famously, remember, he switched his vote in the Affordable Care Act case because he wanted to put the court and its institutional integrity and dignity first. That's credit to him. But what's happened is that- That's how he became a liberal. (laughs) Well, that's exactly right. I mean, the reason he dissents in Dobbs is not because he's suddenly become fond of abortion rights. He's opposed abortion in every other case. But what he is not is about willy-nilly reversing precedent on a dime. And so you're exactly right. In case after case, he finds himself writing these sort of sad little like, you know, sort of like surrendered wife notes like, help me, I'm trapped, I can't do anything. You know, I don't I don't think this voting rights case should have been decided on the shadow docket. And we haven't even talked about that, but that's the emergency docket where the court is now deciding huge numbers of consequential cases without reasoning. But you're right. He's sort of quietly saying this isn't right. This isn't good. And then given an opportunity to do or say anything from this leadership posture of the chief justice, he's just like, oh, it's scary when people threaten justices. And you're right. It is. Nobody's taking that away. But that is not the court's single problem. I don't even think it's a most important problem. And here's one other gloss that I would just add, because I think this is important. People who say, oh, you liberals, you just don't like, you know, that Dobbs was overturned and you don't like that in Bruin, the court wildly expanded gun rights and you don't like that the court, you know, found for the coach praying on the 50 yard line and forcing his students to do that. Like you just don't like the outcomes. And what I want to say is absolutely the issue is not that we don't like the outcomes. The issue is that if you do not have a functioning court and if you do not have a public with confidence in the court, you cannot have rule of law. You cannot have a constitutional democracy without a functioning judicial system. And so I'm not sitting here belly aching because I think, you know, there should be different people on the court and we should have different outcomes. I'm terrified that when the 2024 election gets decided in the U.S. Supreme Court, the way Bush v. Gore was in 2000, the American public is just going to say, no, let's fight this out on the streets the way they do in other failed democracies. And so I don't think this needs to be a partisan conversation. And a lot of the stuff you mentioned, whether it's ethics rules or disclosure rules, you know, justice is just behaving well because that's what we expect of them. Those are bipartisan calls. Just make the court respected, make the country understand that the rule of law matters, because I'm not sitting here worried necessarily just about the next case or the next case. I'm worried about when we need a functioning Supreme Court and the American public approves of the court at like 20 percent, 25 percent, there's no rule of law left. And that really should chill people to the bone. Yeah. I mean, our entire legal system is built on precedent, right? Decisions, just so people know. If you don't know the word precedent, it's basically decisions that were made by the Supreme Court. Lawyers all over the country use cases that have been decided by the highest court in the land as an example of why a judge or a jury should rule in their favor. The Supreme Court decisions are the foundations for our entire rule of law. And because of this, you're supposed to have a really, really good reason to overturn a Supreme Court decision that's been settled, right? But unless some grievous injustice has been made or the court's supposed to uphold its own previous rulings in order to give the justice system a a level of stability. But if we have these systems that are happening now where the Supreme Court starts to sort of systematically knock down its own cases or change long-established precedent for no discernible reason other than this is what they personally want to do or this is accomplishing an agenda that they want to achieve... How long does the court itself, as you're asking, remain legitimate? Because if 
justices can simply supersede established law. If any decision that the Supreme Court makes can just be overturned by different justices with different opinions, then what is the law, right? Other than there's this fleeting whim of nine politically appointed people. And if that's the case, then you're saying like, why should 340 million people be beholden to the whims of nine politically appointed people, right? The rule of law is foundational to the functioning of our democracy in our country. So it's essential that we see these judges and justices as impartial. They're not supposed to be political actors, and yet we cannot see them otherwise right now. I mean, for years, everyone heard about, oh, these guys are just supposed to be calling balls and strikes. You know, they're just supposed to be calling it like it is, talking about the law, setting on settled precedent. But people just don't see that anymore. And it's it's scary because you wonder how we got to this place even. Like, where did the Supreme Court even get this kind of power? Because this isn't how the framers set up our nation. They didn't pass, they didn't put the Supreme Court in charge of our laws. They put Congress in charge of our laws and made the Supreme Court answerable to Congress. But that went off the rails, I think. I mean, it went off the rails probably way back in the day in 1803, uh, when a case we talked about in a, a couple episodes ago with Tom Hartman when he was here about Maybury versus Madison, where they basically put themselves in charge of establishing what was constitutional and what wasn't constitutional. Well, there's literally nothing in the actual constitution that gives the Supreme Court the exclusive right to decide what the constitution means or impose it on the other branches of government. And yet that is how we're functioning right now. And clearly it's not conducive to long-term success of this country. So a couple of things. One, everything you just said should have been John Roberts' end of year report. Like if he had given, you know, <laughs> Why even, doesn't John call me? Even the shoddy poor man's version of that would have been head and shoulders above whatever it is that he, the hairball that he choked out about um, threats to the judiciary. But more deeply, you know, what you're saying is really true. And I think it's this idea of American exceptionalism that you started with, you know, that democracy is perfect, that every part of this is the best in the world, that every democracy in the world yearns to have a Supreme Court like ours. And here's where you and I can say, actually, not so much. I mean, there's no other country and many constitutional democracies that followed the United States in so many important ways that we should lift up looked at the Electoral College, for instance, and they were like, well, this is insane, right? This was it a bargain insane. with slaveholders to entrench mm -hmm. power and minority rule, right? Nobody else said, let's do an Electoral College, right? We look at the profoundly malapportioned Senate, right, where the people in Wyoming have the same number of senators as the people of California. Again, entrenching minority rule, right? Then we have a system where we have Supreme Court justices who, as we've both said now, are appointed for life. Other countries have term limits, right? You're not there until you're 95, and you certainly don't get to time your retirement to coincide with the president of your choice. No other country was like, you know, that seems like a super good idea. That'll take the temperature down on the judicial <laughs> appointment system. So I think this is a place where if you look around, and you're exactly right, Marbury versus Madison gives the court judicial review, the power to strike down uh, 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 what they think are unconstitutional laws. And to be fair, that gives us Brown versus board, right? That gives us Obergefell, marriage equality. Uh, so we don't want a court that can't, that has no power. It's important to have a check in a system of checks and balances. But you're exactly right that the U.S. Supreme Court, as currently constituted, is entirely an aberration. And other constitutional democracies don't say, you serve for life, there's no ethics rules, you can, you know, strike down, for instance, Shelby County, the Voting Rights Act, popularly enacted by huge margins, you can just say like, no, but feelings, you know, and strike it down so that voting rights are eviscerated in the South. So I think you're exactly right that this is a good moment. And, and this is where, you know, President Biden appointed a commission last year to study court reform. And everyone got like super myopic, obsessed with, you know, adding seats, you know, court packing. There were so many other good reforms that were recommended or at least evaluated by that commission that we should be talking about. And one of them is term limits. And one of them is letting every president appoint just two 
just two justices so that they, you know, it doesn't turn into this crazy, you know, murder ball, which it is now. There's, you know, ethics rules and transparency rules and disclosure rules. All of that stuff was discussed. And I think that all of that stuff, if we just sit here and say, oh, well, we're just screwed. The court has all the power and we don't. It's ignoring all of these really, really good suggestions up to and including adding seats to the court. But like we could claw back power (laughs) and to choose not to because it just seems like it must be the best magicalist, superest Supreme Court in the world when no other Supreme Court operates that way is its own form of just sort of like surrendering power. And it really frightens me because I think that after Dobbs, there was this big kind of vibe that was like, what can we do? I guess nothing. But things can be done. Lots of things can be done. And I think that goes back to you talking about everyone being the own their own hero of democracy. Like this comes down to not just us voting for people who will, uh, you know, make changes to the court. And that's not just expanding the court. I, I personally think we should expand the court. I, I do believe that. But I, it's not just about expansion. It's about voting for people that want to put in new rules and new, like you said, who I want to vote for a congressman that wants to vote for new ethic laws, right? Like, I would like to see the shadow docket eliminated. We've talked a little bit about that. Like, why are we seeing court cases that have no arguments? You know, there's no litigators, they're arguing them. They write, a, they write a thing, they send it off and they make a decision and none of us get to hear about it. We don't get to see it. And speaking of seeing it, like, why don't we televise all the Supreme Court hearings? You know what I mean? So that the general public, it's more transparent. We can see how it's being argued. We can see how the justices are behaving. And this idea of term limits, I mean, at first you're like, well, lifetime is in the constitution. You're like, no, lifetime appointments to, and this is what Tom explained to me, it's lifetime appointments to the federal court, not to the Supreme Court. So you don't have to stay on the Supreme Court. You could be a lifetime appointment, but you could be a lifetime appointment on the Ninth Circuit or the Eleventh Circuit or whatever. It doesn't need to be a Supreme Court seat. Um, These are all things we could actually do, but it comes down to us organizing here in our areas to vote for people who will go to Congress and make these changes. Because at the end of the day, it's Congress that is supposed to be the check on the court. And right now, Congress isn't doing that. And we need to vote for people that will make them do that. And I would add one more, I think one more layer to that, which is exactly, I think, descriptively correct. But I would also say this, go back and look at Justice Alito's Dobbs ruling, because one of the things he says kind of snarkily. Do I have to? Hmm. I mean, really? Do Uh, I have to read about uh, the 1700s again? (laughs) About Matthew Hale, famous witch burner who's cited approvingly? No, you do Mm. not need to. But at the end, one of the things he says is, you know, women are not without electoral and political power. But what he's not saying is, I was the guy who voted to end the Voting Rights Act. I'm the guy who voted, uh, you know, time and time again to circumscribe voting. Section five of the Voting Rights Act is killed in Shelby County. But we're told by the court, don't worry, we've got section two of the Voting Rights Act. Oh, but then Alito helps end section two of the Voting Rights Act in the Brnovich case. And now we're now this year in a Merrill case, we're now doing away with the rest of the of section 2 in the voting rights act case. So this yeah. is the same people who are telling you if you don't like it go out and vote. Are Except blessing, we've made it much much harder for you to do that. And they're blessing gerrymandering, they're blessing partisan gerrymandering. They appear to be now re re-blessing racial gerrymandering. So it's one of the reasons for me the book had to end not just on go out and vote for congressmen who, you know, support what you want, but do the big structural change to ask yourself why states like North Carolina, 50-50 states, have such wildly gerrymandered red state districts that they can pass whatever they want to pass. Why is it that if it's not gerrymandering, it's vote suppression, that people in Georgia have to stand in line for eight hours to vote? And so it's not just, I think, Half of the story is get out and vote. The other half of the story is ask yourself why we have an electoral college that ensures that presidents consistently for a decade lose the majority vote and win the electoral college. And we already talked about why. It was a vestige of you know slaveholder power. And I think it's not that hard. It's super easy. You said this at the beginning. It's so true to look at all this stuff and just be like, oh, my God, I hate this. It's so complicated. But states have 
all have sort of operations that are doing gerrymandering reform, that are doing voting rights reform. I mean, this is stuff that it's not going to be good enough once every two years or four years to vote. It's got to be, wait, why is the Senate malapportioned? Why is a president who lost the majority of votes appointing three Supreme Court justices that are then ratified by a Senate that represents millions fewer people, right, from from red states than blue states, and then those justices who have now minority presidents, minority Senate, minority Supreme Court, and then they go around and they re- restructure voting rights so that fewer and fewer people can vote. It's like it's a perfect loop of minority rule. And like yeah. until we can really dig in on some of that stuff, I think that we're just going to we're just going to be frustrated. And I think that yes. this is stuff that people are doing. So we got to get behind them. Yeah. So find the organizers. Don't just do the voting. Find the organizers that are going to make those changes, that are going to change these things, that are going to help the Stacey Abrams of the world, getting people out there, getting people voting, getting people registered, you know, organizing, organizing, organizing um, from the school board level all the way up, you know, that these are all the changes that we're going to see. I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Dahlia. I mean, I hope people listen and they run out and they buy Lady Justice because, first of all, it's a great book, but also because Rebecca Traster, who I also happen to love, who's an amazing author and journalist, uh, she said, your book makes sure that the histories of this terrible Trump period in America won't just be filled with malevolent grifters and the stories of swindlers and the autocrats looking to destroy the democratic system, but also the driven, brilliant, and ingenious people who came along and worked tirelessly, particularly these women, to save the best of what this country offers from the very worst actors. And that's what I I know you do. That's what I aspire to do. It's you what do. I hope our listeners will find their own opportunities to do because no one's coming to save us. And we need this kind of inspiration to save ourselves. Thank you so much. So thank that's you. so kind. And also, I really think... One of the things that you just lifted up that I want to lift up too is that this is doable. It's really doable. It All these women did it, you know, and most of them did not spend their lives training to do this. They thought they were going to do something else. And I just, one of the reasons I loved writing the book was that much of it was written, you know, despondent in hard years over, you know, the travel ban, over family separation. But you can win. You can win a lot. And I think it's that hopelessness a little bit that you and I are trying to battle back to. Yeah. I don't want anyone to feel hopeless. I want them to go out every day and know that it's possible to claw our country back and take us in the direction we actually believe it should go. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So that was Dahlia Lithwick reminding us that no matter how exhausted we feel, we are all in this fight. That for every big name hero we hope will save us, there are a hundred unnamed heroes working behind the scenes, making a difference, and you can be one of them. It is tempting to see everything through the lens of politics in America, but we also have to look at it through the lens of the law and of organization and inspiration. The Supreme Court needs reform. Our electoral system needs reimagining. Our voting rights need protecting. And everyone should be choosing one of these issues to focus on. It's no longer enough to just vote for people who will represent our interests every two years. We have to represent our own interests every single day. I want to thank Dahlia for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.